much and for too long, we seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community values in the mere accumulation of material things. Our gross national product now is over $800 billion a year. But that gross national product, if we judge the United States of America by that, that gross national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwoods and the loss of our natural wonder in chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm and it counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. It counts Whitman's rifle and sex knife and the television programs which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry, or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America, except why we are proud that we are Americans. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to this latest episode of OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. Uh, today uh, we will be continuing on a on a theme of recent episodes, at least uh, uh, assuming these release in order, uh, which is uh, the theme of unpacking uh, common economic statistics that get thrown around by by people talking about the economy. Uh, the 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 problem is most of the people, whether it's you know on the news on TV. Uh, People in conver- you're having conversations with that throw around these statistics. Uh, the, the the problem is that a lot of them don't actually know what they are, or how they're tabulated, uh, you know, and or really what they're supposed to express. And so, uh, <clears throat> uh, want to drill down on uh, these because uh, these statistics can be incredibly useful to explaining and describing the world around us but they can only truly do that if we want understand what the statistic is what it's meant to tell us and what its limitations are uh, without that a stat is just really just a number and we might as well have been made up on the spot I mean 68% of people know that uh, so today I want to talk about a stat that gets used to either cheer or mourn our current economic situation, often by different people using the same number uh, at the same time to reach polar opposite conclusions, and that is the statistic of economic growth. Now, to get into this, I've brought back, uh, by popular demand, mind you, uh, and okay, let me tell you why you're wrong, all-star, Joseph Nadal. Uh, welcome to the show, Joseph. Thank you. My and, pleasure to be here. And I know we were talking about before we started recording, uh, economic growth is, is something you're working on as part of your PhD program. Uh, I mean, are you are you looking at it as a, a as an area of expertise uh, for the future? Or? 
yeah who knows but i think it's uh very important nowadays and we're gonna cover that later because we're seeing things that are quite abnormal mm -hmm. unless if we compare these things uh with like what the theory was predicting say like 20 years ago and that's why it's like a topic that really fascinates me mm -hmm. but i think in general like any economist since like the like the very beginning of you know economics you see adam smith you know like the the, the title of like everybody like cites the the wealth of nations explicitly uh, mentions like the difference in wealth across nations and over time and we don't know or we try to you know figure out why we see all these differences so that's why i'm really interested in this topic and i thought that we you know could, oh. can talk about it and i, I remember the last time we talked about uh, the eurozone mm -hmm. And something that, you know, was very important during like the creation of the Eurozone is this idea of uh, economic convergence, which means that, you know, those economies that have lower uh, capital or like lower, lower GDP, they're going to uh, grow faster so that there's going to be, you know, a convergence. Mm -hmm. And because of that, like the policies can be applied to all of them. Okay. So that's why I think it's very interesting to analyze whether these things are happening and what theory is predicting, you know, like this phenomenon. Well, and, and I mean, to, to, to your point, the, uh, yeah, the, the, really this has been a, a topic economists have been trying to explain all the way back to, to Adam Smith. Uh, and I, yeah, as we kind of get into it, I think we're going to find that it's a, it's trickier to even, uh, calculate or or even once you calculate explain what's going on uh, through the the growth statistics yeah so I, I guess just to start off just to get our, our uh, audience on the same page as far as terminology when we when we talk about growth what metric are we really talking about so in general we use GDP mm -hmm. it's also controversial but because sometimes we think that GDP might overestimate or underestimate an economy. Mm -hmm. Say that an economy where like the financial system works very well and there's a lot of specialization, you get hired, you get paid, we can measure that. But if you do, you do things on your own, you work you know, on you know, your garden or something like that, you're not hiring uh, anybody to do that. And because of that, we cannot measure this amount of service that is happening, you know, yeah. in the economy. It's it's outside of what, yeah, GDP really only tabulates open public exchanges, whereas the, the little things you do either for yourself or, or even for others don't really get rolled into that. Correct. So, but uh, in general, maybe it's not like the best measure, but it's very consistent over time. Mm. So we can see like the differences. And that's why normally we analyze like variation over time. Mm -hmm. uh, most economies uh, can provide information uh, related to uh, gross uh, GDP, at least uh, per quarter. So we can see like the difference per quarter. And also we can compare, you know, one year uh, from one year to the, the, the other one. And like the reason is that uh, there is some seasonality. So for instance, right now, a lot of uh, people go on vacation, students also enter into like the labor market. Mm -hmm. So there is an increase in production or during like the winter season, there is also some consumption because of Christmas. So obviously we cannot compare like different quarters, 
because we're missing some things unless we adjust for like this seasonality. And that's why we also use like the difference between one year and like the previous one. Well, and, and, and yeah, this, uh, just wanna to, to double tap that idea just because uh, I think it applies to, to a lot, especially as we're talking about statistics, is, is oftentimes uh, economists, scientists, any statisticians, really anyone using statistics will, will use an imperfect statistic. Uh, it, it, growth does not fully explain the state of the economy, but it gets used because it, it is, uh, the data required to, to calculate it is available. And the value of, of what that data eventually generates may not be necessarily growth in in terms of, of uh, again, being this perfect metric to explain the state of the economy, but because we can compare growth calculations over time to, to each other, that therein lies the value. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah, it, it, because, yeah, the, uh, I had a question down here of, you know, why again, why do we use growth rather than some sort of metric of general economic uh, strength? Because, again, the a, a, a metric that would explain the strength of an economy or the robustness or, you know, again, whatever, is somewhere between incredibly hard to impossible to, to actually calculate. Yeah. So we use growth because we can calculate it. And, and it, so it's important for people, people out there who use growth or hear people using uh, GDP growth as a statistic to say, okay, well, that's interesting, but that's really not a perfect statistic to yeah, describe Yeah, most definitely. And even now there is like this tendency to use some other indicators such as like the happiness, you know, index, the, yeah. or even like, uh, like the development indicator too, that takes into account some other components such as uh, income inequality. Mm -hmm. And we use also like the Gini coefficient to measure these things. Well, and then again, like the happiness index, because if, if anyone out there is listening heard that and kind of bumped up against that term as some sort of, I don't know, hippie snowflake term, uh, really, I, I, when, when I first came across that, I thought that was a brilliant idea for a statistic because you could have explosive economic growth, but if it's all in grueling, uh, you know, in industries what's the point isn't our goal as human beings to be happy in in our lives and our work and things like that and so i mean there was explosive growth at the end of the 19th century but there were also nine-year-olds in coal mines which which isn't all that great exactly uh so uh, yeah it's an, it, the the happiness index and we may have to do a completely separate thing on that because that is an interesting uh stat to look into and has yeah. some interesting results so maybe we can use you know i i know that it's not perfect at all but we can use gdp as a proxy of you know like the the improvement in living uh, standards yeah. although as you were pointing out it's not like uh like the perfect measure at all well and again it's as so long as as we're you know if we're going to use that stat if, if everyone who was using it, everyone who was hearing it used is, is aware that 
it's imperfect and it it, it it is more valuable in comparison to itself yeah uh, you know again GDP is a fine stat at that point yeah so another thing that I, I wanted to mention you know as a motivation for like this podcast was like a quote from Robert Lucas uh, he was one of you know like the the pioneers in terms of like the revolution of rational expectations that it's an art topic that one day you maybe you want to cover but uh, one thing that really fascinates me is you know like this quote because he says is there something you know some action that a gov- like the government of India could take that would lead the Indian economy to grow like Indonesia or Egypt if so what exactly and if not what is it about the nature of India that make it so. The consequences for human welfare involved in questions like this are simply staggering. Once one starts to think about them, it is hard to think about anything else. So yeah, like there are a lot of economies that are obsessed with economic growth because we see uh, like a huge disparity, uh, like a huge difference in income between different economies. And as I was saying initially, Adam Smith was using this term too. Mm. And a lot of uh, students, when they take like the first like macroeconomic class, one of the first charts that you see is like this uh, huge increase and constant over time with some bumps that the professor you know says that these are like the business cycles. But like the the, the hu- like the the constant trend is uh, constant economic growth, mm-hmm. and we we think that this applies to any economy in the world. But it's not, it's not the case. And also we use a lot the term potential growth. And we don't know whether like, there is like this constant potential growth or not. Some people argue that this is possible and some people argue that this is not possible. So we're gonna, I think it's very important to take this into consideration because basically we focus a lot on demand economics and like, the, like deviations from the potential growth. Mm-hmm. Maybe we are, you know, uh, above or below, but we know that sooner or later we are gonna converge to like this uh, potential output. Yeah. But if you are in an economy where instead of having, you know, this a steep and a straight uh, trend line, you have a flat line. There's economic stagnation. Your potential growth might be zero. Yeah. Or even it it, it might decline if we see, for instance, like Venezuela in the in the last decade or something like that mm. so that's why i think it's not clear to me uh what like potential growth implies sometimes mm-hmm. but in, in general uh what economies used to is like a term that is called a steady state well and, yeah getting back to or get, getting i i guess because the the steady state really i mean comes from smith yeah um and so go going all the way back into uh what 1776 and and even then <clears throat> smith ran into this problem uh or at least this concept that uh you know when when you're looking at factors towards growth there there would become a point at which you, you can't just grow infinitely into infinity because there's there there are limitations to that exactly and so you would eventually hit the steady state exactly that's like so more or less he defined that as a constant stock of you know physical wealth or capital and a constant population size 
in such a way like the economy like the economy doesn't grow anymore it's constant that's why we call it a steady state mm. and the reason is that he thought that there were some diminishing returns in the sense that at first you know creating like a, a new business uh, is very important for the economy because it brings a, a, a lot of growth but once you know all these uh, needs are satisfied we don't experience you know, like the same economic growth mm -hmm. up to the point it's a steady and like the only thing that we want to do is to maintain this level of economic growth. Mm -hmm. In this sense, even like Ricardo was using that and he was like uh, hugely influenced by at that time, like a continental uh, blockade. There was like a, an embargo, you know, by uh, like the, the French mm -hmm. and uh, the, the British economy was getting like industrialized. But the, the, the main problem that they, they, they encountered was that in terms of agriculture, they couldn't grow, they couldn't keep up. And given that they didn't have the chance to use trade because of like this blockage, like they, they, they couldn't have access to continental Europe uh, products, he thought also that because of a scarcity, we are going to converge to a steady state. Mm. And even like meal used like a, a similar uh, term, but in, in his case, it was more like a political view, because as I said, the, 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 the first one, uh, Smith, was uh, having in mind this diminishing returns concept. The second, you know, Ricardo had in mind the importance of trade and comparative advantage and how we can get a specialized and maximized production if we do what we are good at. Mm. Whereas Mill thought that uh, that was necessary. It was necessary because when like the economy stays constant, then we have an economic growth that is zero. And if the, if the returns on capital are zero, it decreases this difference between, you know, like the gains of capital and the gains of labor. Mm. So there is like kind of a convergence towards uh, more income equality. Okay. Another thing was that, well, this is necessary because uh, there are limitations. There are limitations in terms of nature. We're exploiting all these resources and there are limitations in terms of employment. What you were saying, if we need kids to, you know, like keep in, uh, increasing our economy, maybe it's not desirable to, you know, experience this economic growth mm. because there are things that present like pure economic growth. So that's why he had in mind this idea of being desirable to attain uh, like a state in the economy where, where there is no economic growth anymore. But, and that's why I'm kind of uh, fascinated, though, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of uh, curious that Marx, out of like these four, you know, uh, philosophers uh, or economists, was the only one who said that it was possible to keep growing. And I think this is uh, very interesting because like the neoclassical theory also advocates for that. Mm -hmm. Whereas now those who had like a Marx influence, they put the accent on, you know, like the problems with the environment because there are uh, limited resources. Not all of, you know, like the resources we use uh, are renewable. And if, if we can, uh, experience economic growth, you know, in the present 
at the expense of future generations. Maybe it's not the Jabul either. Mm. But it's interesting that he said that the problem was not about like the resources itself, but it was about like the mode of production. So if we change how we produce things, and if we change the system as a whole, maybe we can keep increasing. And I, I think that's very interesting because th this kind of leads to like uh, the idea of the neoclassicals, mm. or like the, 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 the theory that uh, is still uh, very important nowadays. And I'm gonna go over like different variations because uh, I think we had like this conversation uh, earlier. The time is like, like the context really influences the theory. We see like how Ricardo was using, and I think everybody mentions uh, Ricardo when it comes to international trade. Mm -hmm. And he had like this huge influence because of like this embargo, you know, that uh, Napoleon was trying to impose on the UK for like military purposes. Or we see also how Marx uh, was using uh, this problem with like the structure of the economy or, and like production itself because of this kind of class, you know, a, a clash, you know, between different classes. Mm -hmm. So uh, now we see how uh, there, there have been like so many theories, but the main idea that is quite prevalent and that's why when, you know, a professor shows you a, a graph in like macro or economics 101, we do say that there is a constant economic growth over time. And we even say that it's around 2%. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, central banks use this as a proxy for like employment, like creation of new jobs. Yeah, they, it, what, what they expect exactly. the, the, uh, the future to, to look like. And if there are deviations, you know, from like this, this trend, we call it business cycles. And I'm going to, you know, ask later whether these are business cycles or these are uh, deviations from like the potential growth in such a way that we're creating a new potential growth. Mm. That's why it's, it's very difficult to, to like differentiate between the business cycle itself, some transition to like a new economy and a change in the economic growth because the structure, like the structural components of the economy are changing too. Okay. So, um, so I guess in these, these classical models, or at least classical conceptions of, of growth, uh, especially towards, again, a steady state, which, uh, again, I always found interesting because uh, at least it seems like when when Smith or uh, is it uh, Ricardo talks about that, they, they don't talk about it like it's a bad thing necessarily. No. Uh, and of course, you know, to 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 the the modern thinking and economics, uh, you know, a a lack of growth. I think most people would say something's wrong at that point, rather than saying, "Hey, we've achieved our goal. We got to a." super efficient place where we have uh you know our needs met and you know we've we we won you know uh, call out the banners let's have a parade uh whereas again today i really think <clears throat> everything is driven by a, a, what fascinating enough the the marxian idea 
that that growth is possible uh, infinitely. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of limitless, mm-hmm. and that's why instead of using growth itself, we use like growth rate, because we think that you know we we take for granted that this is going to happen, and it's it's very interesting because we also use this terminology to differentiate different countries and some of them we label them as uh, developed countries and like developing countries and I guess the assumption is that those that we call like uh, developed they have attained this uh, steady state Mm -hmm. and now they they have this constant and, and as you were saying like permanent uh, economic growth and all the like the the, the deviation from it is only uh, pure business cycles. Mm. Whereas we we can see how developing countries they have a, a lot of ups and downs, impressive you know periods of like high economic growth, and then some periods of really uh, uh, bad you know. Uh, economic growth, so to speak, even like negative economic growth. So we are not even like growing or like we, we are not even like keeping the economy in like this state state where like wealth, you know, remains constant, but we are even destroying our, you know, mm. stock of wealth. Okay. So because of that. Oh, and I just wanted to ask. So again, in these early models, and I, I think you had mentioned it, but, but just to, to further clarify, the... Uh, I guess the the metrics by which growth was determined, or at least again in the theory, growth is a function of capital and labor. Yeah, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, and so that's very interesting because as you were saying, like it all depends on the context. So mm-hmm. Smith was predicting that, but even we have some like models or some predictions, like the the most famous is like Malthus. Yeah. Malthus. And he did predict that we were going backwards to like a completely like subsistence level because of like the constant increase in uh, population. So if we are in an agrarian economy where all that matters is our agriculture and we don't have like this capital that, you know, can create economic growth because we are uh, like transforming some inputs in output in such a way that it's not like like the, the pure consumption of you know our like agricultural production then we can attain economic growth but even with an increase in uh, population but he thought that like the increase in population uh, would lead us to economic stagnation and again going back to subsistence levels where we have to share a fixed pie and the pie is like the same but like the, the people who want to eat from it is like uh, bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. so that's why I think it's very important. Well, and again, with 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 use, I think the the drawback of using and and obviously as we kind of go through the evolving economic theory here, um, of using again capital and labor seems to make sense. Those are the two big factors in an economy. You know, how much money is there, how uh, how many people you have who could possibly be producing, but of course you hit. <clears throat> very kind of clear logical limitations there because if that were the case if you could explain all growth via just capital and labor uh, then there you're going to hit li- upward limitations on capital because there is only so much money uh, there is only so much so many things to invest in 
And you're going to hit distinct... The only way to grow labor is to increase population. Correct. Uh, because you, you, you can't... Uh, well, you can, but not not at least not in Smith's day. You can't manufacture labor. You can't create things that do labor. You you need people. Yeah. <clears throat> and I and I I mean I think uh, at least most of these these kind of classical views, classical economists were were at least partially aware of not not seeing those limitations again and concluding. That, that we'd eventually hit a steady state. But I think on top of that, they, they, they were likely aware, too, of the, the limitations of their own theory. Yeah. And I, I think it's all about the context. So I think another component that is very important, you know, is to understand what you were saying. If we see, like, a, a chart of, you know, like a, a graph of, like, GDP over time, before, like, uh, I don't know, 1850 or something like that it's like quite flat we mm -hmm. see like some increases but like the drastic and uh, like the dramatic increase happens when we start with all these uh industrial revolutions like mm -hmm. the different industrial revolutions that have taken place over time and another thing that is very important is whether we can replicate you know what uh developed countries have experienced to other economies that even nowadays are struggling to attain this economic growth. Mm -hmm. There's a still like this quest and it's not clear. Well, because the idea being that, uh, again, between the 1850s and, uh, I mean, you can cut it off kind of whenever you want, but say, uh, we'll take it all the way to today. The United States shows this, like, uh, again, exponential economic growth uh, always at an up or uh, always at a generally upward uh, average uh, over time, and you would think then what we could do or what other countries could do is simply take, you know, figure out the recipe for explosive economic growth and and apply it, and they'd get the same results. But the problem is that a lot of these these developing countries have tried. And it doesn't work the same way. Yeah. And even developed countries are, you know, behind all these programs that try to sponsor economic growth. Mm -hmm. We see like all these agencies, all these institutions such as, you know, the World Bank or I don't know, for instance, you know, like uh, like the Asian, like the infrastructure and investment bank mm -hmm. and in, in Asia. And we see that they try to stimulate all this growth by providing some uh, solutions and they are based on theories. We cannot apply any like magical recipe mm -hmm. unless we have a theory behind. And we thought, or at least, you know, all these agencies thought that it was possible to replicate that. And we see that maybe this is, this is possible. And more importantly, another thing that we see is that with economic growth, uh, there is no change in distribution of inequality for an economy. In general, we don't see changes in like the distribution of inequality, which means that if these economies experience economic growth, they are gonna experience also an increase in the level of living standards. Mm -hmm. And this is very remarkable because a lot of people uh, sometimes ignore this, 
when we point to like the accumulation of wealth, you know, among a few uh, millions, you know, in, in the world, but still we're not measuring this in absolute terms. We're not comparing, you know, like the, the income of a poor family uh, like 30 years ago from like the income that, you know, these people are receiving. And that's why uh, we use absolute values. And in general, we use uh, like poverty levels. Mm -hmm. And they're ba based on uh, what is considered necessary in order to have some like quality in your life. And what we can perceive, and it's very important, is that the numbers have changed a lot. So like the population living, you know, uh, in, on a daily basis on less than a, a dollar or what was considered necessary you know, to have some quality and not even like starve yourself was around 30%. There are like different institutions trying to, to measure that, such as the World Bank or Global Consumption and Income Project. And all of them show like this downward trend. And in, in fact, another thing that is important, and that's why we care about like promoting economic growth, is that we can lift out of poverty a lot of people around the world mm. and like the, the clear example is China they have been experiencing a, a sustainable uh, economic or at least uh, constant economic growth and like almost double digit for such a, a long time and we think that China has been like the the, the, the greatest contributor to, to lift out of poverty all of these uh, a lot of these people since we are more or less estimating that 700 million you know yeah. in china have experienced this huge increase in living standards so that's why we do care about economic growth and why a lot of institutions try to sponsor that i mean there's a third component and uh, a lot of people who like conspiracies like this point you and actually it's not even a conspiracy but there are clear political purposes behind that. We maybe some countries provide some financial aid to other countries based on their agreements and their views of uh, how like the world should look like. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's why uh, Bretton Woods was uh, very important. And there was like this huge competition between uh, the Soviet Union and like their model and the model that the Western countries were trying to export around the world that was less like uh, planification, more uh, f like liberalization, free markets and an economy that did resemble, you know, like the economy of like, Western uh, power, so to speak. Well, I mean, there's always the the <laughs> the. Yes, the, the, the international affairs benefits that come from, from providing aid to other countries. But yeah, for the, the conspiracy theorists out there, or at least on the, 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 the further end, because again, saying, well, the U.S. gave money to this country so that they wouldn't become communists during, at the height of the Cold War. I mean, yeah, that's probably... The, I, but... Uh, yeah, for the, the, the more fringe uh, conspiracy theorists out there, my, my question to them is always, if, if you're trying to tell me that there's this grand global conspiracy of powerful people or powerful nations whose goal seems to be getting people out of poverty, 
why do I have a problem with that? Like that that's a pretty laudable goal. And and yes, you know, the 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 US and western powers in in again trying to create this growth in other countries may have may may have been playing international chess in you know, uh, again trying to uh, combat the, the the communist threat back in the the 20th century. But you know, again, the, the goal is still to provide economic growth, which I can have con- can have negative uh, consequences. But generally speaking, again, seven uh, 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 what was it? Seven hundred million million people no longer living under a dollar a day, uh, and from like forty percent to like fifteen. 20%. So it's like half of the population. Mm-hmm. And not only that, we're measuring this in the uh, percentage. But if we measure this in absolute values, it's like even like bigger yeah. because the population has even increased during that period of time. And I mean, granted, there are there are legitimate questions, legitimate points you can bring up against that because you can say, okay, 700 million people no longer living under a dollar a day, but what's the relative value of that dollar to them? You know, did the economic growth also involve an inflating of, you know, the, the their currency or a loss in purchasing power that, yeah, they're up above a dollar a day, but that dollar doesn't go as far as it yeah. did when they were under a dollar a day. All legitimate, you know, points to make, criticisms to, to observe. But again, I think generally speaking, the, the, the push to create growth is a push to... Uh, if not end, then lessen poverty. Yeah, and also they use the PPP, which is the purchasing uh, power parity, to take into account like this inflationary effect that you were referring to. And actually, uh, some of the measures not even take into account $1, but we see some other institutions that they consider that it should be $1.90 or $1.25. So that's why it's very interesting. So another thing that I do consider that is uh, important, or it's uh, also fascinating, is the huge influence. We were saying that there are these conspiracies, or maybe you know, like the competition between Western powers and the Soviet Union uh, stimulated like this this race for uh, foreign aid. But it's it's quite interesting because. The, like the main influence under like uh, Western theories to apply financial aid packages was uh, like the Soviet Union as an example mm-hmm. because we did see how in such a short amount of time the economy completely changed mm-hmm. in the in the Soviet Union it was basically like an agrarian economy it, it was almost like farming and it, it changed drastically to like an industrialized economy that had a lot of military power and also had a lot of brain power. Mm -hmm. So they thought that they could replicate these models in other economies. And like the main theory that was used at that time was like the Herod Domer economic growth theory. And what this uh, theory states is that there's a fixed uh, ratio between capital and output. Okay. If such a thing exists, and you want to increase output, if you increase investment, investment entails like an increase in capital, therefore 
there's going to be an increase in output. So there's going to be economic growth. And this happened, or like, as I was saying, this was influenced by like the Soviet Union, where we saw that uh, a lot uh, of savings were forced by like the own institutions. There was a completely like lack of, uh, of, of capital freedom mm-hmm. and the, the imposition of, you know, some savings, even maybe it was against the will of uh, some individuals who otherwise would have, you know, uh, used these savings to increase their consumption in like the present time in, instead of, you know, trying to accumulate all this stock. And the second component that is very relevant, and even like the authors uh, did acknowledge that they were mistaken or that this was not a model that could be extend to uh, like all the economies, but it should only be used for like the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. This fixed ratio was possible because there were diminish, uh, there were like there were not diminishing returns, since a lot of people were unemployed. So when you have a lot of people unemployed, you don't need to care about labor. Yeah, you've got a, yeah. a, a large potential stock of labor. Correct. So basically, you can still increase the capital without facing uh, diminishing returns. And by diminishing returns, I mean when you increase, you know, like by say like the double, like the number of like uh, input, like if we have diminishing returns, Output is not gonna increase by the double, mm-hmm. by, by by less than you know, uh, twice. So that that's why it was uh, really important. But for some reason, uh, they did ignore you know or a, a lot of you know economists that were focused on development and uh, were participating in these agencies uh, programs. They they did ignore that this. Could be applied in a very specific context, and it's it's quite interesting because we see once again that it's all about the context. The context. Mm-hmm. We saw, you know, what we were saying. As Smith had a theory, and it made sense in a specific context, but here this only made sense or was, you know, uh, applicable when we had uh, this uh, specific context. But it, it's interesting because one theory entails new theories, mm-hmm. or they want to make like a theory more refined, so to speak. And we have another economist that is very important when it comes to economic growth, Sir Arthur Lewis. And in this line, he argued that, you know, again, capital is the, the main component that is going to produce economic growth. And the key here is rapid capital accumulation. Mm-hmm. So we need to stimulate the economy really fast. So if we have a fixed ratio and say that uh, like an increase in investment, you know, implies by 1% implies an increase in uh, economic in GDP by uh, 4%. And if we are, if we are trying to attain, uh, for instance, 8% of increase in, in economic growth, because we think that that's what is going to lead us to this famous steady state mm-hmm. where like this there is sustainable and permanent economic growth then we just need to increase investment by 4% and then we will attain like this 8% you know target so in addition to these two theories uh, the Herodomer and Sir Arthur Lewis uh, theories we have an economist that was highly influenced by like the Soviet Union 
it's quite interesting because actually his main uh, work, I don't know if I wrote down the, 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 the specific name, but it had to do with a non-manifesto oh, yeah. here, I think, a non-communist manifesto. And in his theory, it was called like uh, different stages of economic growth. We see how he broke down in different stages what an like what an economy will experience. Mm -hmm. At first, like the stage one, is basically like a traditional society where farming is the main source of income, and basically we don't experience any sort of economic growth. Well, largely, and and yeah, this is Rostow. Uh, this is yeah. Stage one is largely subsistence farming, with some trade. The the, the second one also implies that we have some mechanized uh, output, mm. and uh, here a lot we have also like trade, but to attain like this precondition for a takeoff of the economy in in the sense that it's no longer flat. If we see like a graph of like output, but it it starts to look like uh, like an upward line, uh, then we need either some uh, financial aid from overseas or even from immigrants who mm. happen to live in other countries that are wealthier and they can, you know, send money back to, to their country to stimulate the, the economy. So for foreign direct investment. And also after these two like uh, stages we have like the crucial stage which is like the takeoff mm -hmm. now that you know the like the the, the, the agricultural sector is um, like is more mechanic and like we have all these machines we can you know send some people to factories and we can start uh, man like uh, like the manufacturing industry and this is going to uh, become more important over time because we have more capital and we can start saving. And we and we were saying that at first we were trading because we had an excess of production. So it was no longer, you know, all we produce is consumed by ourselves, but we could trade. And because of that, we could take advantage of our comparative advantage. Now, in addition to that, we are not only trading commodities, but we're producing something. We're like, you know, we have all these manufacturing industries, which lead, leads us to the following stage that is almost like getting really close to what a developed economy looks like. And it's called the drive to maturity. And basically, you are no longer focused on a single industry, but you start to like diversify. Mm. And in addition to that, you are not only like replicating uh, what other economies can do, but at a lower cost, because you have like cheaper labor, but you can improve your technology and be more competitive. So it's like your comparative advantage, so to speak, doesn't solely rely on, you know, cheap labor that initially, you know, was uh, devoted to farming. And now you, you have this excess of labor that goes to manufacturing industries, but you also have the power of ideas. Mm -hmm. And the, the power of ideas and this diversification creates new opportunities. And if these new opportunities are spread out across all your population, then you can start having the fifth and final stage, which is like the age of mass consumption. In other words, 
now everybody is increasing their income they can you know apply their own ideas to new businesses and they can also have so much income that they increase their consumption and by doing that you can create this middle class and i think a good exercise to to you know uh, do sometimes is to look at like the the ratio of consumption relative to gdp between developed economies and developing economies mm-hmm. we see how like developed economies have a huge portion of like the whole pie that uh, is only consumption as opposed to other economies where investment is still really important yeah because they are still building this so that that theory rasto theory was uh, applied the problem was that we didn't find the results that were expected let's remember that this relies on the herod dummer uh, theory of this fixed ratio yeah that, yeah and also that there was a, like in order to reach this uh, third phase of takeoff that's like the the vital stage in order to create uh, this sustainable growth over time we we had to like experience rapid growth and basically they thought that um, economies who were still like not even like developing but they they had really like low income relative to uh, develop economies they they didn't have enough investment mm-hmm. so, so they come up they came up with like this uh, filling the gap which was like the difference between like the investment that is necessary to in increase output by uh, x amount and the lack of you know investment in in the economy is going to be filled by foreign aid yeah. and if we do that and taking you know uh, or assuming that we have this fixed ratio we're gonna lead these economies like this is going to be like the main driver to economic growth and to like this takeoff stage once you reach this takeoff stage you are you know on your own and you don't need financial aid anymore yep. so it seems like a, a very reasonable plan but uh, when we try to uh, compare this and it's very interesting because that's maybe one of the greatest uh, economic experiments that uh, have happened because foreign aid was based on that for a long time he was part of uh, Rasto was part of the Kennedy and Johnson administration mm-hmm. and that's when foreign aid reached its peak it was uh, almost 0.6% of like US GDP which was a, a lot compared to what it is now and even though as we were saying even not only like the US but also some other developed economies were matching you know in terms of foreign aid what the US was doing we don't see results that are consistent with the theory and that's the thing you can have a a very brilliant theory but then you know reality needs to 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 be consistent with what you are saying well and with, with yeah with rasta i mean you, you you look at that and you're you're looking at stages of growth um makes sense i, I, I we had talked a little bit before we started recording about the need to look at growth over a timeline uh of of things uh, requirements and stages for growth changing uh, as uh, yeah along a a time series 
uh, you know, Ross says the first one to kind of recognize that, that it's not just this simple equation for that, that can easily be, easily be applied to any nation, any economy, anywhere, anytime, is that, again, an economy develops, an economy changes. But again, you know, you, you, as solid and, and brilliant as, as the Rostow approach looks, and you, you can look at it and it makes perfect sense, its result or its theory was not predictive. Yeah, exactly. And here, you know, I, I tried to summarize the numbers more or less because there are some studies, you know, showing whether that that was a positive, like that there was like this positive and constant correlation between investment and growth. And not only that, but what we need to do, first of all, is to look at financial aid and whether by using the filling the gap approach, we can see that financial aid entails an increase in investment. So out of uh, 88 countries that were used in, in this sample, only 17 of them uh, did show a positive correlation between financial aid from uh, foreign co countries and investment. So first of all, if, if you want to stimulate investment and you do it through financial aid, only in 17 cases, so it, it means that there is no statistical uh, meaning or it, it's not uh, significant, only in 17 cases there was a, a positive correlation. More importantly, the key here is that at least the ratio has to be one to one. And by that I mean, if we like financial aid is more, is like higher than investment, then we cannot attain this sustainable path or, or like mm. this this takeoff because basically we are subsidizing we're not stimulating the economy up well, to the point it takes off by well, itself well again the, the the economy then becomes reliant on these large scale for uh, injections of capital and it it never gets to that point where the engine of the economy turns over and it just starts running for itself. Yeah, exactly. So let's remember, I said first, only 17 out of 88 countries had a positive correlation mm. between investment and growth. And also in some studies, they do account for other factors that may, might have an, an influence. But then out of these 17 countries, only six of them had at least a ratio of one to one between uh, financial aid and investment. So it's even lower. More importantly, after, you know, having this investment, this needs to translate in economic growth. So basically what some studies have done in the past is to see whether, you know, investment in a previous period, in like the previous period, did entail some economic growth in, you know, like the next period. And out of uh, 138 countries, only four of Yikes. them did show that. Did show like uh, that in a meaningful and positive uh, way, mm -hmm. there was a positive correlation between investment and economic growth. And that's another thing that uh, is like that, that can be an, an exercise, which is to see how volatile 
investment is relative to economic growth mm. it goes all over the place yeah. whereas as we were saying normally economic growth or in this case output uh, is quite a steady mm. so combining all these results only one country which was Tunisia fit the model of you know filling the gap <laughs> so that's why like the, the, the theory can sound like very sensible but once we apply it Maybe it's not that good. Well, or uh, and I, I think what we what we see with a lot of the growth theories is, uh, as their limitations are discovered, you can still build on the on the structure of them, but clearly they the the theory was not complete. Um, because yeah. again, you know, Rostow, as, as we see, re- again, brilliant. Beautiful theory, uh, but uh, simply couldn't be universally applied in practice. Uh, with uh, and so I mean, Rostow kind of gives way then to I guess what Solo. Yeah, uh, and economists have the best last names. And if, if you let me uh, add something oh, yeah, here, yeah. Uh, so one thing that is very important, like like still like using these projections like Zambia did experience uh, a lot of uh, financial aid like mm-hmm. they, they, they did experience a lot of um, like a stimulus from uh, you know uh, foreign aid and you know using like this fixed ratio uh, and like given you know like the amount that was given to, to Zambia their GDP per capita nowadays would or should have been around like 20,000 and instead is a little bit above uh, above uh, 1000 and very similar to like Zimbabwe where you know like it's ruled by Mugabe mm. and we, we see how you know like the theory can predict something but the reality is completely different mm. and like someone might wonder so where did all this money like go uh, we don't know yeah, but it's, it's oh, yeah. but it's 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 an argument that some people sometimes use against foreign aid. Yeah, and another thing that I think it's important to take into account is that uh, one thing that is uh, significant is that the relationship between uh, foreign aid and foreign direct investment is negative. Mm. If we exclude uh, foreign aid as like a, a way of uh, for foreign direct investment, so basically, uh, all these economies, all these agents, agencies, were trying to fill the gap where they saw that there was a lack of investment. Mm-hmm. But maybe the, the the market was operating in in a perfect fashion. Well, they they basically crowded out actual invest or not not actual investment, but naturally occurring investment. Yeah. And what they did, though, was to lack, so say, lack one period uh, foreign direct investment. So there's a lot, like, there, it, like foreign direct investment de- decreases, then we see how foreign aid increases. Mm-hmm. Some people point out to the fact that the market was operating perfectly. And what happens is some governments start taking bad measures, bad policies. Mm-hmm. The market realizes and that's why there's this outflow of money. Pouring money in the system where policies don't change and like there is no uh, conditionality in the sense that 
like uh, your like your aid is not conditional on you know a set of, of measures to improve the economy might imply like all this waste so to speak of money that we see in cases as you know uh, drastic as like the the Zambia case and another component that is very important here is that we didn't take we took for granted this uh, fixed ratio. But there are some other things that are important, as, and that's why Solo has a, a different explanation of what mm. happened. So I don't know if you want me to like cover oh, it. Hey, well, yeah, because I think you know, Solo takes us into to more of a, a, again, I guess, a neoclassical approach. Yeah. Kind of learning from Rostow and, and trying to, again, find, okay, you know, that that didn't work. Um you know how can how can we adjust it what aren't we factoring for so yeah it, it's very interesting and we go back to this idea of a state state of a, a constant stock of, of wealth and basically we see how capital doesn't explain all sorts of growth but there are some other things that are important especially one in the in the solo model basically like countries uh, our economies grow by accumulating labor and capital. Mm. And there's like this famous equation that is like the fundamental growth equation where we see like the increase in capital will come from uh, the savings. We have like the like our present output can be devoted to either consumption or investment. If we invest, then we're gonna create more uh, capital. If we don't invest, we just uh, consume this capital, so to speak. But at the same time, we need to take into account two components. One is that capital depreciates. Mm -hmm. It doesn't last forever. So even though we are saving uh, a percentage, if say it's 5% of our capital and our de uh, depreciation rate is also 5%, we're not gonna save capital. Yeah. We are not gonna be able to accumulate. And another thing that is very important is that the economy, like the population tends to grow. And what we care about is not capital in absolute terms, but per capita. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, it's, it's, it's well known that China's cap uh, GDP or output is uh, getting closer and closer to US GDP. But then when we look at per capita output, there's a huge difference. Yeah. So we cannot compare both in absolute uh, values, mm -hmm. but in, in, in relative terms. Oh, believe me, people try. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, uh, I think, you know, one of the uh, more misleading uh, things you'll see in, in um, business news or, uh, you know, economic reporting is, is this idea that you know, China's growth rate is much higher than the U.S.'s. And and I think we, we had talked about on an earlier episode that being you, because those two numbers are relative to the, to, to themselves, uh, you can't just look at a straight comparison because, yes, while a 9% growth rate is impressive, or I guess 7% these days, um, if you're starting from next to nothing, it's not that hard to achieve. Uh, whereas... In, a, in an economy the size of the United States, 2%, that 2% seems incredibly small, but it's 2% of 8 trillion? I'm actually, I'm 
no idea at the moment. Oh, I, I would say it's uh, 18. If I'm, oh, you know, yeah, 18. Yeah, right, yeah. We can check it. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to check. But no, I think I'm, I'm massively underestimating it. Yeah, I think it is closer to 16 or 18 trillion dollars. Um, uh, you know, again, that's that two percent of that is colossal, and and I don't I don't know if people have a, a, a true appreciation for that. That we've hit, I the U.S. has hit not quite a steady state because we are still growing, but to grow by a percentage when you're when you're uh, an economy the size of the U.S. or or again even an economy the size of of the the European Union. It's incredibly hard to do and and takes a lot of work just because again you're you're already very large if oh i'm trying to think i guess a a, a highly impoverished nation we could say afghanistan if afghanistan grew by 25 percent, that might mean that, that that might not be all that impressive you know compared to what yeah. it takes to get the U.S. to 2%. And it's necessary in order to catch up. And I, yeah. we can, I think this is something like the neoclassical model also predicts. Mm-hmm. Because basically, I think what was revol- revolutionary in this case was that we are no longer assuming this fixed ratio between investment and capital. Uh, on the contrary, what we see here is that there are diminishing returns. And basically, this has to do with the fact that the effect, say, we have five workers, the effect of the first machine is very, you know, important and it's going to increase our production a lot because we can use some mechanical power to uh, be more productive. But if you keep increasing the number of machines and yet the amount of workers, you know, remains the same, then we see how, like, the effect is going to decrease. And a single worker can operate a limited amount of machines. So because of that, there is no fixed uh, uh, rate between, you know, uh, capital or in this case investment and an output. And another thing that they did ignore, or like uh, previously, like like they didn't take this into account, was that if you have a scarcity in terms of capital, you're going to adapt your production in such a way that you're going to use more of, you know, like the, the, the product or in this case, like the input that uh, is more important or is like more abundant. Mm-hmm. So in this case, labor. So that's why we cannot uh, focus uh, solely on capital. Yeah. And even in the solo model, there was this idea that there was a steady state. So basically, what economists tend to do was to accumulate capital up to the point that we maximize consumption. Because we don't want to save for the sake of saving. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to accumulate capital just to have more capital. We want to do all these things to, you know, later consume even more and attain this famous steady state that uh, even Adam Smith was thinking about. And... That's why it's, it's really important. So sometimes people use uh, this concept of the golden rule mm. that basically we reach this maximization when the marginal productivity of capital is equal to uh, like the rate of depreciation 
and the rate of uh, increase in uh, of your population. When you reach this, this you're maximizing uh, what you can uh, consume. So in other words, if your marginal product of capital is higher than uh, what you know, like your depreciation rate is, and your um, like population uh, growth rate is too, then you can still increase capital. Why? Because what we see is that there are diminishing returns. Mm. So you keep increasing capital up to the point you re- you that you equalize. You know what what I was saying, like this marginal product of capital to these two ratios. If it's the other way around, what you need to do is to save more, mm. so that you go back to this famous golden rule. And we see different economies, like there are some comparative stat, uh, statistics that look whether economy looks you know better or not in the long run, based on this golden rule, so to speak. And more importantly. In this case, we say, well, one day, if we uh, keep accumulating capital, we're going to be able to consume. But maybe this day is five or 50 years down the road. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do that? Maybe by that time, you are no longer you know, alive. <laughs> so that's, that's why we do include something that is like the time preference. And if we do include this, then we call it like the modified golden rule mm-hmm. and we see how there are changes in preferences and I'm gonna go back to this when we see how the population in developed developed countries has been like getting older and older mm-hmm. and we see like there are some models like the overlapping generations where there is a clash of preferences mm-hmm. essentially like uh, a young population has uh, more like a preference to the future mm. because it's going to benefit them if you know we are uh, trading pr- like present consumption for future consumption but if you are you know uh, by the end of your life maybe like such trade-off is not as important as it would be even if you care about future generations mm-hmm. so that, that's why it's important to to keep this in mind and one thing that is very important, as I was saying, is that we reach this maximization and there's a steady state. But in reality, we see that, as you were saying, that the US still has a kind of a 2% growth rate per year. So then there, is there any steady state or not? Mm. So what complements this theory is uh, a technological improvement. Mm-hmm. So basically we think, yeah, we have reached this steady state, but it keep increases not because of the accumulation of capital as Rostow and other economists thought in the past, but thanks to technological breakthroughs. So innovation is what determines growth. And a good example that is frequently used is uh, Henry Ford uh, innovation. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the, the thing is not about whether we are accumulating more labor or more capital, but how uh, we can combine both and be more productive. Same inputs, but we realize that there is a, a method that can increase productivity. And I was uh, mentioning uh, Henry Ford because we see how you can have like uh, an amount of workers and amount of machines. 
but changing like the blueprint, like the way of production makes a drastic change too mm. for uh, economic growth. So if you come up with like this idea of uh, an assembly line, all of a sudden you haven't increased um, capital or um, uh, labor, it's just you are more productive. There's like this technological breakthrough. Well, you can get more or create more product to sell more product uh, without, again, you, you, you didn't need to invest uh, anything else beyond, beyond the investment in the assembly line. And you didn't need to hire more workers. In fact, I'm sure we can get into you as technology advances, you can start, start hiring fewer uh, workers. Uh, and yet, again, your output and thus productivity is is increased uh, significantly by that. Yeah, and normally we use a, a term that is called TFP, which is technology technological factor productivity, that tries to encompass all this uh, productivity that uh, lies in the fact that you are better at combining bo- both. Uh, sources of input, labor and capital, as I was saying. You can use this example of Henry Ford, or even you know, in the present time, if we think about Uber, for instance, yep. we have Google Maps. It's not, it wasn't completely new, like Uber like, didn't create Google Maps, and you had some people that were you know, ready to drive. You come up with an idea, you combine capital, in this case, like this like technology, mm-hmm. and you combine labor, uh, drivers, and you can increase the productivity of an, an economy. We yeah. see how like the number of rides have increased dramatically uh, compared to before, you know, like all these car sharing uh, apps. Mm-hmm. So another thing that reflects this reality, and again, what I want to remark here and uh, stress is the fact that capital is not the source of economic growth, but is technology or like in this case uh, innovation mm-hmm. like how we can apply different technology so that we get more efficient when it comes to combining input well and I, I guess yeah not just not just uh, only technology but also the uh, I guess applications for technology because like you were saying there with you know the rideshare services uh, no new technology was invented for that. There were, uh, you know, uh, cell phone apps, cell phone, uh, you know, smartphones, uh, Google Maps, and cars. Those are all the established uh, pieces of technology. And uh, but what it was was somebody took that, took those, the fact that all four of those things existed at the same time and figured out you can actually create a completely new industry really and well i mean it's still still essentially you know driving people places but you can create a whole new outlet yeah for the economy uh using that yeah it, 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 it's incredible and again if you want some data to reinforce this idea when we use comparative stati- statistics we see, for instance, that between 1960 and 1985, uh, capital per worker increased by 250% in Nigeria and Hong Kong, both economies. So essentially, if everything, if economic growth 
only depends on capital, both should have experienced the same increase in output per capita. Yet we see how during you know these 15 years in Nigeria, the output per capita only increased, like the like, uh, cumulative uh, output per capita, only increased by 12.55%. Whereas Hong Kong had like this amazing increase that was by 328%. Again, both of them increased capital accumulation by 250%. And yet the results are completely different. So clearly capital cannot explain that. And that's precisely why uh, the solo model is like highly regarded. Another example is Gambia and Japan. Both of them increased by 2%, uh, sorry, not by 2%, by 260% capital per worker. And yet in Gambia, the output was only 2%. Whereas in Japan, there was like this huge increase of uh, 500% during also this period between 19, 1960 and 1985. So it's clear that this doesn't reflect, you know, why we see differences in economic growth across time, across countries, sorry, and over time. Mm. And even though this model points to technological growth, and I was saying that we use like this TFP measure. Yeah, yeah. It's also known as solo residual because mm. this, it, it's quite interesting. This model doesn't tell us where like economic growth comes from. It tells us that it doesn't come from like the accumulation of capital, but then you need to figure out how you come up with like this brilliant ideas, this innovation that creates like technological breakthrough and leads the economy to like a higher living standards. Mm. And what the model uh, maybe like I would say like what the model fails to explain is also why even nowadays we don't see things that uh, are consistent with the predictions and I'm gonna try to be more specific so basically I'm, I'm gonna borrow uh, Lucas uh, criticism because okay maybe we can say that an economy initially grows a lot because uh, it's uh, still like, you know, using only a, a limited amount of capital, like there's a lot of scarcity. And then like the returns on capital are really high. Mm -hmm. And that's why, for instance, as you were saying, China can grow at a higher rate than the US. But this doesn't explain why two economies that uh, should be similar, I mean, or should not be similar, sorry, like say the US and India, if capital explains the whole difference, then we should expect, and like and another thing that to take into account is that uh, capital only accounts for, uh, in the case of the US and most uh, developed economies, for like 30% of total output. Yeah. And if all the difference only comes from capital, then the difference in terms of how many machines a U.S. worker has relative to an Indian worker has to be huge to explain the difference because the difference in, 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 in GDP is really high. So it means that the U.S. has been able to accumulate a lot of capital during that period. The, the number was really high, like 58 times, 
which uh, is not very plausible. Not only that, but if there's more scarce, scarcity of capital in in India, and someone you know can doubt, uh, because we see how like the dissemination like of technology and innovation with globalization has been like uh, very remarkable. So in other words, you can come up with a brilliant idea here in the U.S. and maybe in less than two months, a Chinese factory uh, is able to like replicate your idea for mm. a, a way lower cost. But what I was trying to say is that if capital uh, and there is more like a scarce in, in India, and that's like the example that he used, then the returns on capital should be way higher in India. And if that's the case, all the income or all the like investment from the U.S. should go to India instead of remaining in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you have higher returns on capital. Yeah. So that's why the, the, the model is not that solid. And we need to account for another thing in addition to technology. And this other thing is that we were trying to think of education as something that was given, right? Mm. But maybe it, it's not the case. And I'm, I'm going to cover that uh, later. But one thing that I think it's, it's important to take into account is that uh, these different periods of time or like this uh, ratio of like, uh, like this uh, negative ratio between how developed your economy is and how fast you are growing is not consistent. But at, at first we thought that was consistent and that this model, like Solo's model, mm. fully explained all the economies. I, I think it's, uh, it's also like kind of fascinating how they realized that the model was not uh, consistent and it's a good example to explain selection bias. So normally we think that, uh, for instance, uh, it say, and that's another case in Russia, uh, they tried to analyze like the effect of a disease and they did uh, consider how many doctors visit, you know, like visited like different towns. Mm -hmm. And they saw like there was a positive correlation between, you know, the number of doctors and the number of deaths. Hence, there it means that uh, the doctors are causing or are increasing the number of people, you know, who die from this disease. Mm -hmm. But because they didn't take into account in the first place that, you know, the rate of people that, you know, suffer from like this disease was way higher. Mm -hmm. So there was some selection bias. Doctors didn't randomly go to different towns. That, they, 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 they went to towns that had reports that people were Exactly. Uh, but again, if you wanted to, you could then blame uh, through, through uh, correlation, but not causation. Yeah, that's... That's exactly what happened. In this case, even it's even like reverse uh, causation. Mm. So doctors, you know, go to a town if uh, people are sick. So that that's why I was trying to use uh, this example to illustrate what happened here. There were all these seminars, and th this is a theory that was developed, if I'm not mistaken, around like the, the the late 50s or 60s, and then was applied. But of course, first you have the theory, and then you need to check it with reality. And at first we thought we thought that was consistent. We we saw how there was like this com like convergence uh, between uh, across you know uh, developed economies, 
In other words, like those economies that had, you know, lower levels of capital were growing faster. Mm -hmm. Yet, in one of these seminars, you know, uh, Brad Delog, uh, he worked for like the Bill Clinton administration later. He pointed while, you know, another author, Bamol, was trying to explain this statistical relationship that maybe the problem had to do with who collects this data. Mm -hmm. You can afford to collect this data if you are a developed economy. So the, the, this convergence that the solar model was predicting is only consistent with developed economies. With, with, yeah, with, with, with countries that have reached that point where, where they have enough um, education capital, what, what have you, uh, to then accurately uh, or to dedicate people to accurately collect the data. Exactly. So the economists had access to all this information, and you know he was drawing all these conclusions. So it's 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 similar to like the doctor case. Mm. In the case, if you're missing like the big picture, once they were able to account for other economies, the statistical like the negative statistical uh, relationship between growth rate and uh, uh, initial levels of capital was no longer consistent. Mm. And some people use now like a term that is called conditional convergence, which means taking like the rest of the factors uh, equal, like they, 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 they like taking them for like taking them constant, then we should see that. Mm. And there is some uh, relationship, but it's very weak. So that was one of, of the problems. And we don't observe what the solo theory was predicting. And as I was saying uh, before, there might be different reasons. Mm. And one of the reasons, going back to like the Indian example, what we were saying is, well, maybe like the, the capital doesn't go to, to India, uh, even though we should see that. And maybe this doesn't happen because uh, we cannot consider that all sorts of labor have the same productivity. Mm. So if you send machines that require high skills and educational attainment is not really high and like they don't know. And by I, I use like the example of machines, but of course we can think about computers, uh, software packages, different things that require some training. If we don't have this training, then investment is not going to go to these places because their labor is necessary too. We don't. We cannot think that the the average worker in the U.S. Uh, has the same you know set of skills as the average worker in Bangladesh, for instance. Mm. There there are differences, and that's another input to take into account. So there are different models that try to take this into account because it's almost uh, a sort of capital. Indeed. Some people call it um, human capital. Mm. And uh, technology can improve. We can have all these breakthroughs, but also we can be more productive through, you know, innovation in labor and basically increasing our, you know, set of uh, skills. If uh, we know how to use all these like uh, software packages, then we can like become more productive than someone that unfortunately maybe is illiterate or something mm -hmm. like that. So 
that's why all these things are necessary to, to take into account and the, the solo model failed to explain them although there are some models or like there were some variations that tried to account for first like the technological breakthroughs and this increase in uh, the productivity of labor but all these models are exogenous we don't know why we're increasing like human capital mm -hmm. what's what's the main driver why all of a sudden our you know workers are becoming more productive than mm. they used to be and and then we have two models that try to to explain that and it, it's quite interesting because Romer you know he, uh, this uh, an economist that now if I'm not mistaken he's like the chief uh, economist at the World Bank mm -hmm. and he has been contributing a lot to all these uh, economic growth theories he also criticized uh, this version of you know everything can be explained through you know uh, difference in 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 labor in like the productivity of labor because basically if a uh, highly skilled labor is more scarce in say like let's just like keep using India and the US in India then what happens is that those that have these high, high, highest skills in India will receive a higher salary mm. because there's more scarce, scarcity. Whereas in the US, those who have like these high skills will receive like uh, lower salaries. And the pattern should be the following. If, if you have a lot of people here with a, a particular set of skills, then in India, uh, those who like come to the U.S. shouldn't be those who have like really high skills. Mm -hmm. Yet we see a, a lot of engineers and people with really high skills coming here because the the returns are higher. Yeah. Whereas if you have lo like lower skills, you should move to the U.S. because fewer people have these skills. Yeah. So the pattern doesn't reflect what the theory was predicting. Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, Lucas and also like uh, Romer, but I'm going to start with Lucas, they tried to use models that are called endogenous models that try to explain through the model why there, there is like this variation in terms of accumulation of human capital. Mm. And basically here we can point to like something which is normally or like my, my narrative was pointing to this like substitute effect. Basically, if you have like high skills and I go to the market too, or, or else constant, I'm gonna decrease your salary because mm. there's gonna be more competition. But we cannot keep everything constant. If I go to the market and I have higher skills and you also have higher skills, what's gonna happen, it's probably we're gonna complement each other. Yeah. So we need to take this into account. One, say, lawyer without, you know, being surrounded by other lawyers in an economy where uh, this, you know, uh, kind of profession is not like well developed, cannot fully exploit, you know, like um, his or her skills. Mm. Whereas, and say like we, we can use even like the example of economies, if you have like different economies, then you can like say like divide and conquer. You can be more productive 
because like some people would do like some other like uh, tasks and also because there is a leakage there is like a spillover of ideas mm -hmm. like what is called like the peer effect basically you get rewarded or like your skills become more relevant and more productive when you are surrounded by other economists so if you have I don't know, like the, the like the economic, you know, like the, the economics department of like University of Chicago, mm -hmm. they want to get together if, instead of, you know, going to different schools, different universities across the country, because then like the production becomes lower. But if you are all together in a room and you are in a seminar, your ideas can be more productive if other people add, you know, some like commentaries or like uh, some other ideas, you know, on top of your idea. Mm. So that's why instead of being substitutes, sometimes we have like this complementary effect. And this, I, mean, I was using like, you know, these narrow examples, but this translates into like the daily life. Basically, you know, your skills can, you know, have a huge effect on like the whole household. Mm. You know, you, you can help your children, you can also have an effect in a regular conversation with um, your friends or even if, you know, you want to do a podcast. So yeah. you, you can like use all the information. So that, that's why the, 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 the reason why we don't see this pattern that earnings are higher where, you know, high skilled workers are less uh, important or like less uh, prominent is because of the complementary effect that has uh, like uh, workers, or in this case, a skilled workers. Well, again, that, I mean that that goes to the uh, what what you were talking about with the the idea of uh, I guess uh, comp complementariness. Feel like I made that word up, but uh, uh, complement. Now, you know what, uh, the, the, again, the idea that, uh, uh, of, of the, uh, you know, the, the increase in skills not being competitive, but again, creating compliments and thus, you know, driving, driving more productivity, driving more, uh, need, uh, and thus, uh, uh, you know, driving growth. Yeah. Uh, out of that. And that's what happens uh we cannot assume like a partial equilibrium mm -hmm. where like no variable gets affected by you know by but only like your earnings so what i was saying you say like the example of economists a company might think well now we can devote more you know resources to research if we have enough economists and that's why we can create like this like virtuous circle, mm. like the, the, this positive effect. And what I was saying is that there are some uh, spillovers. That's like the Lucas model, uh, where it takes into account, you know, human capital. But same applies to technology. And we can go back to like the, the Google, ma uh, the car sharing uh, yeah. example. This breakthrough of innovation that at the end of the day leads to, you know, economic growth, is easier when there's already like some technology, when there's already some innovation. So basically, it's easier to, you know, implement all these breakthroughs once you have some level of technology. 
without you know smartphones without uh cars and without like uh, google maps for instance it's more difficult to come up with an idea that combines all of them mm. because they, they don't exist and like the effect of technology transcends the private company in other words more innovation entails more innovation from other competitors because they can easily replicate you know your solutions so in both cases where i was saying when i tried so say that i'm trying to assess whether i need to get an extra year of education or not increase my schooling normally what i take into account is my returns on investment mm. but i'm not gonna consider that this go this is gonna have also a positive effect on you mm -hmm. when it comes to technology we see similar examples when apple is trying you know to come up with a new version of its iphone they try to take into account only like the positive effect in earnings in expected earnings for them not for like the whole economy mm -hmm. in the sense that this is gonna you know drive other competitors to replicate their model and be also like more uh competitive and entail more innovation well and, and and i mean even beyond that the the unintended well i don't know if you can call it unintended but the okay so if, if you're looking at the smartphone and you know apple's creation of that again looking at hey this is going to give us something sort of unique that will give us an edge over our com uh, our competitors again excluding the idea that eventually all of their competitors will generate smartphones of their own um, but then again that unintentional growth in the economy as a whole that comes from okay now i've got a smartphone but you know my my, my apps are, are are pretty general pretty generic uh, suddenly because of one invention uh, that did not I, again you, you could argue whether or not they foresaw the 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 applications market that would come out of the smartphone but uh, all of a sudden now there's this whole new outlet for for the economy for for programmers who can create you know an, an app that makes the sound of a champagne cork popping so that i can annoy my friends uh or or again an app that gives me uh my grid location uh in latitude and longitude anywhere on earth which doesn't sound all that helpful but can be at times you gotta be pretty lost for that thing to come in handy but uh if you're that lost you're gonna be really happy that you have it or, uh, you know, again, I've got an app on my phone that allows me to check my heart rate. Yeah. Uh, just through the camera and the phone, I put my finger there. Uh, you know, again, that, that's money that's not entirely going to Apple, but only possible because of their invention. And will have been possible to, you know, have all these car sharing apps that we were mm. referring to without, you know, this is a smartphone? Probably not. No. And before, like a smartphone, imagine like you have uh, like a, like a population that uh, is not used to use phones at all. Then it's it's really difficult to like all of a sudden implement and like you know launch this smartphone. Mm. There's like 
like that's why I'm saying like every invention benefits from previous inventions. Yeah, it, well, it, be, it becomes a, a building or a, a growth process. Exactly. Uh, because yeah, no, exactly. If you if you were to try to apply the ride sharing model to I don't know. There's there's really an increasing limited number of countries that are so behind the curve technologically that that you could really like shock them by introducing you know stuff like smartphones. So let's let's just take a theoretical country. Uh, yeah. If if you were that that again has not even gotten to yeah um, you can say Cuba for instance yeah. like oh, in, actually, internet is actually, not actually no Cuba's going to have to become the new example for that because uh, yeah no they have been more more cut off although again no no cell, cellular technology anything like I that. I mean they do they do okay. but like when it comes to internet it's yeah. still okay. So, it, yeah, again, a more isolated, more cut-off country. And if you were to just drop this idea of, hey, you guys have cars, you should create this rideshare service, uh, just just use these new phones we're providing you with, uh, it, it, it might collapse right there. Just because, again, it's it's a little... You're, you're, they haven't had that rolling growth yeah. and that rolling technological advancement that leads it to the point where... Again, literally anyone uh, out there today with a car, with a phone, could can become an Uber or a Lyft driver because the phones, they're familiar with the phone, they're familiar with the car, they're, the, the technology is all pretty intuitive, it, it's pretty easy to pick up. Exactly. And the, 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 the problem here, and that's why these, these models are very important or relevant, is that all these innovations or like all these companies or all these workers that are getting extra training they don't account for like the social benefit mm. they only account for like the private benefit normally we use like the term externality to explain uh pollution for instance but there are also positive externalities and this is a clear example if the social benefit is greater than the private benefit mm. so in other words the, the the like the effect on innovation of Apple by you know like uh, creating uh, like this kind of a smartphone transcends you know like their earnings like the, the, their profit and they cannot capture the, that when they you know try to analyze whether it's profitable or not to invest in like new innovation mm -hmm. because of that uh, like these two models that I was referring to like the Romer Actually, uh, some credit uh, can, you know, uh, be also gi uh, given to Arrow or Arrow. Uh, he was, you know, like a really relevant economist, and he has this like uh, great paper uh, uh, called, like, I think, the the effect of like uh, learning by doing, mm -hmm. and basically explains like the process that you that you were describing, and. All these models sort of predict different uh, outcomes if there is a centralized economy as opposed to a decentralized economy. Mm. If there is a decentralized economy, we take all these things for like uh, as given. They are fixed. But if it's centralized, then a central planner can account for all these effects. Mm. So here it's kind of uh, counterintuitive because basically 
these are like neoclassical models and yet we are saying that you know a like a central like 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 planified model is more efficient than uh, another one where it, like you have like this sort of decentralization because individuals don't account for like the social benefit mm -hmm. and because of that we see two policies that are really relevant nowadays and every like there is a lot of consensus the first one is to subsidize education mm -hmm. because the social benefit goes beyond your earnings it has an effect on the whole economy yeah. so if you want to transform your economy you invest in education and maybe like the private you know individual will invest less than what the economy needs mm -hmm. because of that and the second one is industrial plants Mm. All these plans that you know are subsidized by the government because uh, companies don't take into account like the technological breakthrough that comes with you know their innovation. So that's why these models are are quite relevant. And because of that, there has you know a lot of economists and other people involved in uh, like foreign agencies that try or like development agencies have put like the accent on education. Mm -hmm. But this is a very controversial topic because there is no clear causation between an increase in education and an increase in uh, growth. Huh. And we always like try to say, well, you need to invest in education because this will entail uh, an increase in, gro uh, um, in growth. Well, the, 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 the fact normally comes the other way around. Oh, really? I, yeah. So first of all, if we take into account uh, like education, mm -hmm. we can see how like educational attainment has increased a lot around the world during the last decades. Attainment is way higher than it used to be. Yet economic growth uh, around you know like in all these regions is not as high as the increase in education. So that's why we consider that maybe education doesn't ex like doesn't fully explain the changes um, in economic growth. In fact, there are like different theories that try to explain why this doesn't happen. As I was saying, there has been an explosion of educational attainment at all levels, but we don't see like no like uh, any significant relationship between increasing schooling and economic growth. Uh, for instance, you know, I was mentioning Cuba earlier. You see that uh, Cuba has like really high levels of education or even like the Soviet Union had like really uh, high levels of education. And yet there was no like positive correlation compared to other countries. Why? Well, there are like different things. The first one is that people respond to incentive. And there are different uh, economies that have been looking at what kind of incentive you create in your economy. If you, as I was saying, if you you know get a degree in economics, but you cannot use that, or you are, I don't know, a business person or an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. but you cannot create your own business, then even though you have received all this education, you cannot apply it to the real economy. Okay. So that's one of the explanations. The second one is that when we use like the term schooling is very abstract, is very vague. Mm -hmm. 
like we have problems to measure the quality of a schooling. Like one year of a schooling in the US may be completely different than in another region uh, around the world. Mm -hmm. So that's why there is this difference. Uh, for instance, some people have been looking at Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we see that there is like this system that tries to reward those or oh, they I, it, I think it has changed a little bit but basically they try to reward those who you know had some affiliation with uh, like politicians mm -hmm. and you, you know like they got like uh, positions as teachers but the quality of their teaching wasn't that good but it was it wasn't based on academic or you know like um, skills but instead it was based on political affiliation mm -hmm. so that's why it's not clear but what's more interesting is that some people think that there is like reverse causation again you know we can use like the example of you know basketball mm -hmm. uh, sorry basketball like the hospital oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I get confused yeah. because I, I had in mind another example that is like some people use this example too that is some people think that basketball makes you taller <laughs> but it's the other way around because people who play a lot of basketball yeah. tend to be really tall so I mean they don't think so but someone can say well here there's a clear correlation mm. and this doesn't imply so essentially we think that if you don't have economic growth wages are not going to increase yeah. if wages don't increase then you don't have any incentive to increase education in the first place so by you know providing all this financial aid that tries to find education without trying to you know reshape all the incentives in the economy you're not going to experience economic growth mm. so i'm not saying that you know the, the the relationship doesn't exist what i'm saying is that it's not clear and it especially it gets even like weaker when we don't account for other factors mm. so another factor that is very important in this case was the resources that are used normally they say well we're going to invest in more education we're going to increase the number of teachers but it turns out that uh, there are like higher returns sometimes for material things that like students lack or that you know using different systems such as uh, like a, a phone system instead of like like delivering you know like the like the physical textbooks mm -hmm. might increase you know the effective of educational policies so all these things have a, an effect but uh, some people say that when we try to analyze whether you know more education leads to more economic growth normally out of one percent of economic growth for uh, mainly like developing economies again i'm not referring to uh develop economies where we think that they have attained like this so-called yeah, steady state or yeah, near enough to yeah. The steady state yeah but we see like mostly it comes for like for one if we break down you know one percent of economic growth that is like above like the av the average for mm -hmm. all these economies n like 91 you know per percent of like this one percent increase comes from productivity gains and only like six percent of you know this would be explained by education hmm. so it's it's again it's kind of counterintuitive but it's because we don't we don't think about uh other factors that might uh matter 
essentially if you know you have a set of skills but you cannot apply them in the economy then they don't become relevant mm. so well it, it, it seems too that uh, it, you know we've identified variables but um, it seems like most of the variables whether it's technology education uh, you know again general demographics whatever they may be all of them interrelate with each other exactly and and they're all simultaneously interrelating with each other in in different but critical ways and so in order to again hit that point of, of growth not only do you need technological advancement but you need technological advancement in or in in concert with education but you also need education in order to get technological advancement and you need uh, either uh, uh, a, a population with an increasing uh, life expectancy or a growing population with the same life expectancy but you need that in concert with education and technology because you need the technology to get the life expectancy up and it becomes this very intricate uh, set of relationships with each other that that again if, you know finding the, the the point at which all of them are influencing each other in just the right way that's when you can get significant growth exactly and this this concept of education again i know it's very controversial because a lot of people think like the magical formula you know includes you know mm -hmm. education uh we can think even you know in like developed countries now we kind of experience that too when we see like there's like you know underemployment or people overeducated so in other words people that you know graduate from college and yet have jobs as like barista or you know server or things that they don't necessarily require uh like a college degree mm -hmm. and there are like maybe like two things to take into account here one is that education is also consumed in, in rather than uh, like invest so what I mean by that is that sometimes we just want to increase our knowledge not because it's going to increase uh, like the returns on you know this this effort that we're putting on but because we enjoy to learn more yeah so that that's something to, to take into account and that's that's why it's we need to differentiate between both of them because if, if it's for consumption, then we shouldn't, you know, like uh, increase this financial aid, so to speak. Yeah. Unless, you know, we want to really like be like really generous and like uh, give like the, this financial aid that is not going to return because mm -hmm. it's not a, like it's not an investment for them or something like that. But the other component that is also very important, and again, I'm going, going back to the incentives, is say that... And, some countries, uh, unfortunately, a lot of countries experience that there is like a huge dif different uh, difference in educational attainment between females and males. Mm -hmm. And there are some programs that are trying to reverse that, mm -hmm. that they are trying to, you know, like uh, increase the number of years of education for women as well. But the problem is that if you do that and you concentrate all your efforts there, but then you don't you know, like, and I'm, I'm referring to uh, like the World Bank or programs that try to do that. But then you don't, you know, like this help is not conditional on getting rid 
of all this regulation that discriminates, you know, women in the labor market, mm -hmm. like the fact that education is increasing is not, you know, it, it doesn't imply that it like uh, economic growth will will increase you. Mm -hmm. Because even though, you know, they have like this potential uh, skills, they are not applying the market because they get rejected, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So that's why uh, we need to take into account how like the incentives are set in every economy. Mm -hmm. Or for, uh, again, going back to like the example of, um, you know, like the, the US and a college degree and how some people unfortunately might not find like their job. It's also true that some experts uh, point to like the federal loans and how, you know, like the, the, the interest rate doesn't change depending on the field sometimes. Mm -hmm. So uh, essentially, if you change like the incentives, if like uh, a, a, a loan gets more expensive, and by expensive, I mean like the, the interest rate gets higher, if the returns, you know, like the future, like the future expected returns are lower, then we might see how some people also change their degrees as well mm. to accommodate, you know, like their needs. And I think that's an important factor to take into account. So education might be a contributor, a, a factor that increases economic growth, but with the right incentives, mm -hmm. not necessary. Again, we can use like the example of capital. If we solely focus on accumulating capital, this doesn't entail like economic growth. If we solely focus on like increasing education, educational attainment, but without trying to know whether, you know, the incentives are set in like the proper way mm -hmm. to optimize, you know, like this higher level of education, this higher level of capital, then it's, it, it remains uh, like a, a pointless factor. Yeah. So that, and if it's not useful, then again, we see why there's like kind of waste of foreign aid that doesn't contribute to economic growth. Mm -hmm. But there's another thing that has been like very popular around like economic growth theories and I call it like less is more because it's like controlling population growth. If you remember when I was mentioning like the fundamental growth equation, uh, equation, basically we know that on one side of the equation we have savings like this accumulation of capital and on the other hand we have like the depreciation of capital. It's very difficult uh, to like uh, reduce you know like this depreciation rate I mean, we can do that through, you know, uh, technological breakthroughs, but it's complicated. But with what seems like uh, easier to control for is uh, population growth. Mm. And there have been like some policies, and it's very remarkable, the example of China that tried to uh, reduce like the, the, the population growth. Yeah. Because as I was saying earlier, there are diminishing returns and at the same time, what we care about is uh, uh, output per capita, mm -hmm. not total output. It's, it, I mean, it doesn't matter if we are like one billion, if you know our output doesn't increase, you know, as high as you know uh, our population growth. Yeah. So that's that's why I think it's it's very it's very important, you know, or at least it has been important, and some people have been, you know, trying to use like uh, policies that promote birth control. Mm. And I mean, like we have like the radical examples of China or even like Vietnam, where there were like uh, one or two child policy. Yeah. yeah. And some people point that this is why, you know, like in the case of China, they have, you know, uh, 
uh, been able to lift out of poverty so so many uh, people and they've been experiencing this uh, high uh, growth in, in, in output. But again, it, it might sound counterintuitive, but I think the example of China overshadows or is we overstate the effect of that. Mm -hmm. In fact, since the 1960, uh, we see that ha that population has more than doubled. Yeah. And we might say, well, if that's the 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 the, the effect, then uh, output might have decreased, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we have diminishing returns and yet we're still like increasing our population, it it seems that we are not, you know, we're not going to be able to fit all, you know, uh, new generation of uh, all the all these new generations. But we see how food production has more than tripled because we don't take into account like the effect of technology. Technology has a huge effect. And this goes back to what I was, I think we mentioned that like earlier on like the Malthus view that we were going back to like this subsistence level mm -hmm. where basically we have like a, like a limited amount of, um, of land and that's what matters. It doesn't matter if we are, you know, more productive uh, to, you know, use like this land and like transform this into output. So that's why it's not clear that, like, I mean, there is no evidence one way or another that population growth affects per capita growth. And I, I, I'm going to give you another example because maybe uh, as some people uh, think, well, you have the example of China. Mm -hmm. But if we see like the region that has experienced the largest growth lately, you know, like these like recent decades is, is Asia. Mm -hmm. And they, they have exp they, they, they have experienced also like the, the, the largest population growth. I mean, along with like some parts in Africa, but it seems that that's why we don't see like this uh, strong relationship between uh, economic growth and uh, population growth. Some people think that actually there is like a reverse again causation in the sense that as income goes up, the opportunity cost of having more kids increases. Why? Because, you know, like your wage is going to go up too. So you want to devote less time at home because like your foregone earnings are higher. Mm -hmm. So essentially it's not that because I don't have kids, I'm getting like a higher salary. It's because I'm having, you know, I'm, ex I, I'm having a higher salary that I don't, I don't have as kids as, you know, some, someone else would have. Mm -hmm. So that's why, again, when we do that, when we lack, you know, uh, income, we explain like the decrease in economic growth, sorry, in uh, population growth. Mm. And this is called like the, like the, like this called like the transformation between an extensive economy where you need a lot of people to an intensive economy where you have fewer people, but they are more productive. Mm -hmm. Not only, you know, they are more productive because they devote more hours to what they are like really good at. Mm -hmm. And maybe they devote like less hours to, you know, like parenting. But also uh, they, they have like uh, higher levels of education. And this translates into like uh, kids that might become more productive, so to speak, because they, 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 they receive this influence from, you know, their parents. Well, those those. Uh, you know, 
inner family and then even just societal resources can be uh, applied mo- more heavily because there's fewer people to to spread them out across. Correct. Yeah. And and even some people, you know, argue that there's like this pool of talent. So like, you know, like the the, the larger your population is, you know, like the the, the more likely like uh, is that you you'll you'll uh, find someone that is like a genius mm. and then you can uh, spread th- these ideas, you know, across like the the whole population. Hmm. So now it seems that it's changing. Well, and and I guess that brings us to the question of, you know, okay, now now we've got newer adjusted theories uh, uh, to explain growth. So growth is entirely and completely understood, right? We we we've perfected the theory of of growth to some extent, yes. <laughs> but but really. I, I think that, uh, that there was more of a setup not not an actual assertion there uh, no because we have it right the I mean there there's still an issue yeah it's, it's still an issue and I think that this kind of explains why some people now use like the term secular stagnation what is secular stagnation how does it affect growth Can an economist ever just give a straight answer to a simple question? Well, you'll find out all these things uh, in part two of, uh, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a Joseph episode unless we, we had to break it into two parts. I don't think I've ever had a conversation about economics with him that didn't last for more than four hours. So, uh, yeah, come on back in uh, two weeks, and uh, you will be able to uh, listen to part two, where we get into uh, some of the finer details of secular stagnation and more the modern theories of, of growth and the issues, of course, with those theories. I'd uh, like to thank you all for bearing with me. August was a little busy uh, on on the personal side so I wasn't able to put out my regular episode so I just skipped one and uh, we'll be putting out this one uh, hopefully you're uh, you know enjoying these enough to, to make it worth the wait uh, like to thank you all for listening and uh, remind you to uh, uh, as the saying goes like share and subscribe uh, Be sure to uh, come out and find us on Facebook. Uh, Join the Okay, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong Facebook group uh, where you can uh, post comments about each episode as well as uh, hopefully suggestions for future episodes. I'm hoping you guys are out there liking this uh, kind of theme we've gotten ourselves into of uh, dissecting... um, economic statistics I I, I I know some of the comments we've gotten in the past is you know we we, we start off uh, a, a lot of these episodes uh, I guess maybe presuming a certain certain level of knowledge of, of kind of the uh, nuts and bolts of economics and and that's really not the point of the podcast the point of the podcast is for for just any anyone with no background in economics could could listen to this and and get some value out of it so you know my goal uh, going into the future is to to sort of uh, break down these these smaller ideas in economics that way in in episodes where we get into bigger ideas in economics you'll be able to have that kind of baseline knowledge but uh 
yeah, if this is uh, working for you or if it's not, uh, come join us on Facebook. Let me know what you think, and uh, we'll adjust off of there. Also, hopefully you enjoyed the new uh, lead-in music, uh, uh, one of my favorite uh, speeches about economics by uh, Robert Kennedy. And, uh, yeah, uh, we will see you next time on OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong.